what we've got here is failure to communicate. From sunny Southern California, we bring you Meet Bridget, a podcast for building confident communication and female badassery. We spotlight women who have bridged the gaps in their lives by building strong relationships and speaking their teenage dreams into reality. Like the idea of becoming like completely independent and not knowing if I was going to be able to make rent, not knowing if I was going to have food. Welcome. Born Diana Carolina Munoz, a first-generation American-born full-blooded Colombian, Donatella Izaigas is a phenomenal, multi-talented tattoo artist, designer, and entrepreneur. Los Angeles born and bred, she brings an elegant and genuine perspective to the art form. She's brought her talent and unique skill set to the tattoo industry since 2009. Her mastery in single needle and excelling in detailed fine line work has brought her to working at the internationally renowned Shamrock Social Club on the world famous Sunset Strip in West Hollywood, California. Donatella pushes the boundaries of what one can do with a needle and ink, translating and transforming her clients' ideas into work beyond anything they could have hoped for. She's here with us today to peel back the layers with us, and we cannot wait to share her stories of a rebellious childhood, living with lupus, life after a divorce, and her perseverance in a male-dominated industry as a multifaceted, crazy talented tattoo artist and designer. Donatella recently did a gorgeous, super meaningful tattoo for me, and I was so incredibly inspired by her energy, her talent, and her story. So welcome, Donatella. We're so excited you're here today. Thank you so much. I'm so I'm so happy to be here amongst some amazing women. Thank you. We're really excited to have you. So we want to dive right in. You have an incredible story. We love to start our interviews by shedding some light on your formative experiences of childhood and your teen years. So could you give our audience a taste of where you're from, what your background is, where you grew up? So um, I am the first generation born here in the United States from a fully bloodied Colombian family. that being said, that means I was raised like a Colombian. And sometimes people laugh when I say that because they're like, what does that mean? You know, I'm like, well, it means that I was a trained housewife by the age of 10. You know, I was like doing laundry, doing the dishes or cleaning the whole house. You know, at 12, I started taking care of my little sister to help raise her. So it's just a very tightly knit family oriented upbringing that was primarily uh, focused on these Colombian morals of hard work, perseverance, uh, very, it was was strict in a sense. There was expectations of me at a very young age. And um, we grew up kind of like in different ghettos of the valley is how I like to describe it. So I uh, grew up living in government apartments, eating government cheese, you know, like EBT, the whole thing. Uh, my parents, they, they worked my dad at 1.3 jobs. And uh, my mother started working when my sister turned two years old. So that's when I started taking care of her. But yeah, I, I mean, I grew up in kind of like the shadier areas of the valley, where there was a lot of gang violence or gang activity. And um, I mean, I feel like a lot of that experience 
made me who I am in a sense because it was a little rough around the edges, but I was able to still be transported to like magnet schools from those areas, which I think gave me this kind of like duality in my life where it was like, you know, this like little badass, like I'm not afraid of things, you know, I've seen some stuff to like, I'm going to be bust out and go to school with like the rich kids and like see what they're up to and how they live. And, you know, it was like two different worlds that I was able to experience simultaneously that I think really helped shaped who I be, who I've become. I remember you sharing with me that um, both of your parents are from really big Colombian families too. Mm -hmm. Um, What was like their experience of childhood and like education in Colombia as opposed to like what you were experiencing once you were here? Well, I mean, like, first of all, shout out to my parents for coming out here because it's like, that's a crazy move if you really think about it, you know, like don't know the language, don't know anyone, have, there's no certainty, but you're just leaving a place to try to become something different. And they really did that for us. Um, my parents both come from li- really large families, like Asha mentioned. Uh, my mother is one of nine. My my father is one of 13. I think that, you know, from the stories that they've told me, their upbringing was really harsh. Um, there was a lot of abuse. Um, there was a lot of hunger. There was a lot of neglect because there were so many of them. And they were in, they lived in such impoverished states that the parents, my grandparents couldn't give them everything they needed, including shoes, food, you know, the basic necessities. So, you know, now kind of like relating to my mother more and seeing her from an adult point of view, it's like, I understand her so much more and like, like little things like, like, why do you hoard all these things? You know, why do you have the need to collect all these trinkets and like looking at her childhood is because, because she never had that. She never thought she could have that. So it's, you know, it's very interesting um, to kind of see that just one generation before me had this completely different life that was centered on necessity and like scarcity. Uh, And even though, you know, like I said before, I grew up in like different ghettos of the valley, I still had food every single day. I had shoes, you know, I had a place to go to school. I didn't have to help raise five kids, you know, just one. (laughs) But, um, but I think like being able to, to see or empathize with my parents' experience has really allowed me to appreciate them at this different level and just strive to be the absolute best that I can be so that I can almost like, like do this like retroactive healing for them. You know, it's like, I just, I just want to like see them have all the things that they never had because, you know, they sacrifice so much for us. And there's this insane appreciation that I have for them and like this, like extreme love, you know, and Uh, it's like, I just, I just appreciate it so much. And, and I know, yeah. It's wild. I, um, I come from a first generation American family. Also my mother's side, they also have a huge family. I don't know how, like you said, one generation before it's like my mom's one of eight kids and her mom's one of 12. So you're like, man, that's like, that's about 
you know, seven or eight years of my grandmother being pregnant. Like in her life. I've only had one and I'm like, whoa. <laughs> you, know, you think about it, you're like, uh, it's just unheard of. But then, like you said, somehow they managed like put food on the table every single night, no matter the conditions. And you're like, it's just impossible when you think about it. Like it, it makes it difficult to complain even when you have a, a day of struggle now, right, you know? Absolutely. Was it just you and your sister? Uh, no. So I have an older brother who's seven years older than myself. Then I'm the middle child, the black sheep. My younger sister is nine years younger than I am. Okay. And she's the one that you helped raise. Yes. So, I mean, I can certainly relate to the idea of like, because I have much younger siblings too, but it's just, it's the the domesticity that you have to have. And then by like, <laughs> you know, 10 years old, you're raising another kid. Yeah. But um, are, are you and your sister close? Can you tell us a little bit more about that relationship? Yeah, absolutely. My my sister is my little princess. Like, I absolutely adore this girl and I'll do anything for her. And um, her and I, you know, it's like, obviously, you know, siblings at first you clash a lot and up until like one of them matures enough to where they get along with the older one, right? So when she turned 16 was the first time we really bonded like friends instead of siblings. And ever since then, I mean, she's just, you know, anything that I know, anything that I can, any resource that I have, I always want to share with her and like give her my knowledge. And uh, it's really come into play with both of us having lupus and me having been diagnosed about nine years in front of, you know, ahead of her. Um, and it's interesting because like, I've been able to kind of give my health conditions a purpose, you know, that feels, it made everything feel like it had happened for a, a specific reason, you know, not just having to grow as a person or go through these trials and tribulations and be stronger. But I was like, I have this purpose of helping my sister. So I've really been able to act as a guiding force for her. And I, I love seeing her flourish and grow. And, you know, she's now married and it's like, it's this beautiful thing. And, you know, it's like, she's like, she'll always be my baby. And I'm sure you're incredibly significant to her as well. I totally, I totally get what you're saying though. Like with, you know, lupus is a chronic condition. You know, I, I contextualize like my thyroid cancer in a similar way where it's like, okay, yeah, it's difficult to go through something like that. But the process of using what you learned to shed light on something and pass it to someone else and hopefully make the process a little easier makes, makes that experience worth it, you know, and to have that effect beyond your younger sister, like, I mean, it couldn't be more direct than that. So cool. Yeah. It's, it's, this weird, beautiful thing that you don't, you you never expect it until it it comes to life and you get to observe it. And you're like, oh wow, that's why. I have so many questions about lupus, and I know we want to dive into that deeper. But I also know that you mentioned you were, well, you said you were the black sheep growing up, and you also said that you might have been a little devious as a child. Um, but you were getting bussed into magnet school. So I just, I wanted to go into that for a little bit. So you could tell us about your experience bussing from different neighborhoods into, um, you know, an area that was unfamiliar going to magnet schools with kids that at the time were more 
Affluent, like fortune maybe? yeah affluent thank you <laughs> tell us about that experience and like who you were as a young kid aside from you know obviously being a magnificent big sister so uh when i was a child i you know a lot of teachers started taking notice to my abilities and so i was usually placed in to different categories than my grade and including trying to uh, get skipped up grades. My mom never let me, but it was, it was interesting, you know, because I was always just like, I, I had this spark in me where I was like extremely active and like, I just, you know, I, I was very verbal and I could communicate well, but I was just a little asshole. Like I was a menace, you know? Like how, what, what would you do? Oh God. Well, I was, I can't, I can't lie. I got suspended for sexual harassment in the fourth grade. Oh, what a grade. That, should we say that? Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. No one's going to come after you now. <laughs> oh, God. You may have been one of those kids that just had a lot of energy that needed to be redirected. And, you know, when kids don't know how to redirect that energy, usually it comes out in inappropriate ways. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I was a very hyperactive child. And then uh, well, the moment I found art, which was when my mom was pregnant with my sister, I was able to kind of refocus and redirect that energy into something that I just I fell in love with. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was kind of like, you know, seeing these bad examples around me and seeing, you know, kind of turbulent activity at home and then bringing that trauma and energy with me into these schools and these classroom settings, which, you know, I sometimes allow to manifest as just bad behavior and bullying and fighting, you know? Even though you were coming in from a different neighborhood, did you feel like there were friends that you could relate to? Did you have like a group that you could lean on that you could talk to? Um, and articulate some of the things that you were feeling at that time, like whether it was anxiety or anger or just like the like the discomfort of being, you know, a young teen or growing up? Well, one thing that was this prevalent theme in my childhood was moving. My parents moved like it felt like every one and a half to two years. And like I said, I was like in different ghettos of the valley. So I was just like, in one school and I would finally get accommodated and get a group of friends. And then it'd be like, no, now you're going to move schools. You know, when I was a kid, it was just kind of like, oh man, not again. You know, I have to go through this process again. You know, I have to like meet new people and be the new kid and like be awkward and uh, all the way up until high school. That's how it was. And I remember hating it, you know, because it was so stressful to be that new kid. I'm like, well, what am I going to wear? Who am I going to talk to? And what am I going to do for lunch, you know? But now as an adult, you know, I, I realized that what it did for me was made me an extremely adaptable person to where I can, I can be in a room full of gangsters and they will love me. I can be in a room full of scholars and I'll make friends and we'll have conversation. I can be in a room full of millionaires and Hey, we're, you know, it's like I can blend into all these different social scenes pretty seamlessly because of the fact that I had to become adaptable by force as a child, you know? Did you find that you were true to who you were 
during each iterate, like during every move, or did you feel like you needed or were pressured to adapt your personality to other people? That's a good question. <laughs> when moving around, I mean, I feel like naturally you kind of become like a chameleon and you almost like start to observe your surroundings and see what you need to be to survive there or to, you know, to strive in a certain environment. Um, you know, that being said, I think like now as an adult, I probably like, I am, I am very true to who I am and it's like, and I am who I am, but I will tailor my mannerisms or my actions to specific settings, you know? For sure. Do you have in your mind, like the moment you found art? So, and maybe this explains the crazy bond with my sister, but while my mother was pregnant with my sister, um, I was 10 years old and it, my mother was 34 when she was pregnant with my sister. So at that time, you know, it was kind of like, oh, wow, 34, you're so old to have, you know, you're having a kid now, you know? So it was deemed like a complicated pregnancy off the bat. And my sister even had like liquid in her head to, it, it had gotten to the point where like the doctors were like, hey, we don't know if you should have this kid, you know? And my mom was like, no, I don't care if my daughter's or my kid's born with any kind of disease, I will take care of it. You know, like I'm not going to get rid of my baby. So I remember we would, um, I would have to accompany her to all these doctor's appointments and we're going to you know, county hospitals, government facilities. So it was three, four hour long appointments and we would take the bus there. And I just, I was so bored out of my mind that um, I remember right at that time, this guy came by the house, the apartment and he was selling encyclopedias. And I was uh, like, I was always so intrigued by like the library and encyclopedias. I was like, wow, like that's so cool. My dad ended up buying my brother, like the adult encyclopedia and myself, like the children's encyclopedia. And I was just like, oh my God, we've hit it big. Like we've got encyclopedias, guys. Like, this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and I happened to be obsessed with fish. So I, uh, I loved fish. I loved looking at them and I loved eating them. Like I was the kid doing oyster shooters when I was 10. So I actually ended up stealing my brother's F encyclopedia. And I remember I was like, oh, like fish cool so I opened up that f section and I started seeing like these beautiful images of different fish and I remember grabbing a piece of paper and taking that encyclopedia with me to my mom's appointment and I was just like I just sat there and I just tried to redraw the fish I was seeing and it just became like this obsession to where I was like I had my mom buy me like white paper and like a set of like specific colored pencils and I was just like I was like, all right, cool. We're going to the doctor. Let's go. You know, I'm like, time to draw fish. And I ended up drawing all the fish in the F section. And that, that was that moment that shifted everything. You know, it was just, it went from like, you know, Christmas gifts were Polly Pocket and Barbie to like, everything was markers, paints, paintbrushes, anything for art supplies. But I feel like my parents finally saw like, oh, this is going to keep her entertained. Yes. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, all that energy can go into this. <laughs> Traditionally, like non-American parents can be known for being tough on their kids in terms of like wanting them to choose um, traditional jobs like doctor, lawyer, like you hear like from Asian families, like it's like nurse, doctor, lawyer, whatever. 
So a lot of times you hear that there's pressure, whether it's internal or external pressure because of that, to find a job in a certain path. Were your, did you experience that growing up or were your parents supportive of your artwork? Like, did you always know that that was going to be the direction you went in your life? Uh, so growing up, um, I didn't feel that pressure to to choose a career path necessarily. For us, it was kind of like, you know, like stay on top of your stuff and don't die. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> um, you know, but um, also, you know, listen or I'm going to come down on you. I feel like once I found art, it was, it wasn't like I, it wasn't this plan that formulated after it. It was just an obsession and it was a focus. And I remember the very first time I sold art. And again, I was in the fourth grade and I was in my, in my science class and everyone's doing science. And I had drawn my best friend as an alien and aliens are like super hot then, you know, and, <laughs> and I drew her as an alien and I was like a very specific way of drawing her. And I did a background it was super elaborate and I gave it to her and 10 girls within one week were like, I want a drawing of myself as an alien. And I was like, all right, I'll put you on my list. I remember sitting in that science class, having a list of 10 girls that wanted their picture drawn as an alien. And for a simple one, I would charge $1. And for a complicated one, I charged $2. And I was like, screw all this science crap. I was like, I'm going to make these drawings, make me some money. Because <laughs> you clearly were doing well in school. You know, you were drawn to, you know, knowledge and encyclopedia and just, you know, obviously we're performing well in school. And then like on the side, there's this like art thing that was happening. Was it around that point with like the alien drawings or did you have like a specific point in like your education where you were like, okay, I'm going to pursue art as like my career? I mean, so I continued to make art throughout, you know, junior high, high school, college, then college, I started taking it obviously a little bit more seriously where I was taking classes, but it was just always something that I knew that I loved. You know, I knew that it was a thing that drove me, but I feel like my artistic side was definitely inspired by my mother because she was always extremely crafty, but my father always had this business mentality to him and like be your own boss, you know, and like, you have to know how to do, you know, 20 different steps to run a business correctly. So I feel like their combined influence really led me to the path of education where I was studying business marketing and art simultaneously while I was apprenticing and learning how to tattoo. So I always found it super important to know the business side of things and to be able to understand just like how things function and then to be able to apply my passion to that function, kind of have both of those meet. I feel like a lot of artists, um, there's sometimes like that fear of like, okay, if I make my passion my job, like, will I lose some amount of inspiration or will the pressure to produce art on demand, like, will that change the energy around it? Did you ever have moments when you were considering making art your career where, you know, the business side of it maybe threatened your inspiration? So I feel like I never really chose art as my career. I feel like it was just 
this gift from God that was like presented to me. You know, it was like, it feels like a path that was there for me to take. Um, luckily within art, you know, it's this beautiful versatile subject matter where you can do a lot of different things. And especially like having had that like business mentality and business background, I was able to kind of like objectively look at things and be like, all right, well, I can use my talents here. I can use my talents there and I can use my talents there. So for me, like one thing that I really try to tell young artists, especially in Los Angeles, I tell them like versatility is key. You can't be a one trick pony. You have to have different skill sets and you got to be fucking good at all of them. You know, like there's, there's just no half-assing anything. It's okay. Multiplicity is something that a lot of people don't think about. I mean, I think that most kids go out into the world trained to think about career as this linear thing, as opposed to the way that your creative mind was able to bring all of these things together, where you're just doing the thing that you love so much, but also you had the foresight to think, okay, well, I want to know how it works if I were to actually do this as a career. So let me do business, you know, let me, let me do business marketing and learn how to do that while I'm learning how to apprentice and practice the thing that I love. And I just think that that's such a, a cool lesson for anyone listening because you can do the thing that you love while you're training to do it practically and in the real world and that it works. One of the things that we wanted to really go back to, because I, I have a feeling that the timeline probably matches up with when you're studying business marketing in addition to your apprenticeship, but somewhere before, right before or around that time, I we understand you were diagnosed with lupus and that that has been a huge part of your life and your journey and talked about it being a part of your calling as an older sister as well. So we'd love to hear about the diagnosis and how that happened and how you have, you know, worked through that and, and lived with it. Sure. Um, so I was diagnosed with lupus at 18 in my senior year of high school, at the very end of it. Um, I actually like to call lupus like a, a heartbreak disease because it can be triggered by high amounts of stress and mental duress. So my first boyfriend broke up with me kind of suddenly, didn't say anything to me. And this was like my first love, you know, and it just destroyed me. I remember not being able to sleep or eat well or focus for two weeks when that happened. And shortly after that breakup, you know, my hair started falling out and I used to have really like weird, violent dreams. So I thought I was ripping my own hair out. And then I remember one week I woke up with like a missing patch on the side of my head and I, I was like, oh, it must've been a weird dream. Next week, another patch on the other side of my head was missing. And I was like, oh, that's kind of weird. And then I started uh, getting a butterfly rash, which is a rash that goes across your face underneath your eyes. You know, and at that point, my mom was like, all right, I think we need to go to the doctor. So we went to the doctor and, you know, they ran some tests. They couldn't figure it out. I just kind of started hopping around from specialist to specialist. And finally, I went to a dermatologist who ended up taking a biopsy from my uh, elbow. And the results came back and determined that I had lupus. 
at that time, the disease was very new. Um, there's still like not really set medication for it. It's like it's treated with anti-malarial medication, which is like from the 50s. So, um, yeah, you know, I at 18, I started kind of my journey with lupus and I struggled a lot and I wasn't, you know, I was a very rebellious kid. So I was out there smoking, drinking, partying. I was just bad, you know. I wasn't taking good care of my health. And at 19, when I moved away from college, my health just plummeted. I was, you know, out of my parents' house for the first time. And I was drinking, partying, you know, showing up to class drunk, just like being reckless. And I had quit working. So I got to the point where uh, one day I was eating a piece of toasted bread with ketchup on it. And I was like, oh, man, I got to move back to my, my parents' house. So, um, so yeah, I, I ended up having my first, or I guess my second pretty nasty, um, experience with lupus to where my health was just deteriorating again. And I ended up having to move back to my parents' house. Now the synchronicity with this that was interesting was that the week before I moved back, one of my cousins gives me a call and she's like, Hey, guess what me and the girls did last week? I was like, or last night, sorry. And I'm like, oh, what'd you girls do? And she's like, well, we met this owner of a new tattoo shop and we all got drunk with him and we all got tattoos. I was like, wow, that's really stupid. And she goes, yeah, but I told him about you. And I was like, oh, well, what'd you say? And she tells me, well, I told him that you were cute and creative and you could draw. I was like, thanks, cousin. She goes, yeah, he wants to meet you. And I tell her, well, coincidence that I'm moving back home next week, so let's hang out. And literally the day I stepped foot into my parents' house, I call her. I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, coming to pick you up. She picked me up and we met. We went and we met the owner of the tattoo shop where I ended up apprenticing. Yeah, so lupus was actually the catalyst for many things in your life. Absolutely. Yeah, I honestly feel like it's been this weird blessing in disguise. You know, lupus taught me how to live. It taught me that I was not going to allow unnecessary stress into my life, that I wouldn't allow people that would bring on this stress, that I would have to eat right, that I would have to exercise. So I was like, okay, this disease has taught me to, you know, rest, eat a healthy diet, exercise consistently and try not to be sad or stressed out over anything. I was like, eh, that's kind of cool. I mean, it's an ideal way to live. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I feel like there are, I mean, every autoimmune condition is, is different. Uh, but I had a similar situation when my like Hashimoto's came on. It was right when I was finishing college. I was breaking up with like a long-term boyfriend and that was like my first big love. And my grandpa died like in the same week. And that's when like all my symptoms started. And like you were saying, it's like that kind of reminder that it's like, okay, like this physical reminder for, or this physical reminder to take care of yourself, you know, and it's serious and to take care of your emotions and your stress. And um, yeah, it's, it's tough, but like kind of a blessing in disguise. So when you were apprenticing, um, did you, what were like your big breakthrough moments when it came to 
like discovering your style as a tattoo artist? Did you have any like really positive, really negative experiences when you were just starting? Oh God, yes. (laughs) So like the very first time that I tattooed a human, I was only six months into my apprenticeship and um, one of the one of the regulars at the shop who was like this punch drunk Muay Thai fighter named Sean, who I absolutely love, he uh, his permanent accessory was a 24 pack of Bud Light. And he came into the shop and was like, hey, I want you to do your first tattoo on me. And I was like, all right, cool. And he goes, yeah, what are you doing right now? I was like, well, I'm making this drawing. He goes, well, drop my tattoo. I was like, uh, all right. So I dropped the man's tattoo and he goes, yeah, that's perfect. Tattooed on me. And I was like, no, Sean, I don't think I'm ready yet. And he's just like, no, do it. I was like, no, 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 I'm not. It's only been six months. I'm not ready. Just tattoo me. Just And I look over at my mentor and he goes, well, just do it. So I did my first tattoo on him on his thigh while Four male artists were barking different commands at me, telling me, you're going too fast. You're going too slow. You're messing it up. You're going too deep. What are you doing? It looks terrible. So that was the introduction into tattooing. So that was, you know, that was fun. (laughs) What did you tattoo before you tattooed humans? Nothing. Nothing. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) We love talking about like visibility um, for people women going into different career paths and stuff, like the impact of seeing another woman doing the thing that you're trying to do. Were there any like women in the tattoo industry that you were watching or inspired by, or did you, did you really have visibility of women in that industry at all when you first started? So as far as women in the tattoo industry that I was looking to for inspiration, um, I was really obsessed with like looking at the tattoo magazines. So Megan Massacre was one of them. Kat Von D was another one of them. But like in an immediate environment, there were no women around me tattooing. It was, you know, what within the shop that I was in, it was just a lot of dudes. And within the shops that were around, it was all guys, you know. Um, so when I first started learning how to tattoo, it was an extremely male dominated atmosphere. And I didn't necessarily have a woman to look up to or relate to in a personal sense, besides these, you know, already like semi-famous tattooers that were on these magazines. Did that impact like your style? I mean, both in your actual art, but also like kind of your working style at all? Did you feel like you needed to kind of be different in any ways? Or did you feel like you learned a lot Um, Like you kind of followed in the footsteps of the guys that were around you. Well, being around so many different types of personalities in the tattoo world, you know, I, I liked observing all of them. And my strategy was to pick up on the great things I did and also the bad things I did, because I wanted to learn from both sides. I wanted to learn what to do and what not to do. And I was shown a whole lot of what not to do. And I was also obviously shown a lot of great things. But to me, it was getting that core knowledge and being able to apply my personal style to it. That was super important. You know, um, I was also, you know, with apprenticeships, sometimes, you know, they can be a little, there's a little hazing and they can be a little rough, you know, at least back then. Um, And I feel like 
I really appreciated that. I really appreciated being like not babied or not treated like a princess by the boys. You know, it was just like, no, they were like, they were rough with me and they were honest and they were mean. And all of that was in preparation to deal with a much larger audience at a later time that, you know, it's like dealing with the public. You're not always going to have everyone who's happy and nice and sweet and appreciative. Sometimes you're going to get some crazy ass people, you know, and you have to be able to maneuver through that in a professional way. Your brand is like so clear and sharp and, you know, it's just very, it's very identifiable now. And part of that is your name, Donatella is, I guess now, which, you know, you took on at a certain point. Did you, did you do that around the time that you were starting to tattoo or were you tattooing like under your original name? Like when did that kind of transition happen? So the transition from my birth name to my now chosen name, it took place. The official transition was uh, 11-22-2019. And it was just kind of like this culmination of feelings of where like I was, I had no connection to my birth name. I never liked it. You know, people, they call me Diane. And it was, you know, like I was born Diana. It wasn't Diana, you know, it was like, so people would be like, oh, well, how do you pronounce your name? Diane, Diana, D- I was Deanna. I was like, I don't care. I don't care what you call me. I, I don't like that name. I don't relate to it, you know? And then like, it goes from like being born Diana Carolina Munoz to Diana Carolina Minos, you know, it was like not, it was not me. So there's this, this complete disconnect from the name also is like, it wasn't like I was named after my great grandmother. I was named after a soap opera, for God's sakes. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, really, mother? A soap opera? <laughs> just to add just a little bit more injury to insult, my sister-in-law has the same exact name. You know? So I was just kind of like, man. I was like, I don't want to be this. And um, I... I had decided that I was, you know, I was tired of the name. I didn't relate to it. I was going to change it. And I told my friend and he was like, he's like, oh, are you changing it to Azagus? And Azagus means unique, one of a kind in Latin. Um, And it's a a name that I came up with in 10th grade. So I was like, no, that'd be too weird. People couldn't transition from that. I was like, I want to keep the letter D because all my stuff was DCM, which was my old initials. And Donatella was the only name that ever popped up into my mind. I have a lot of respect for the Renaissance period, and I just wanted something classic. I wanted something that represented art for me, um, something that didn't necessarily connect to an origin. They, like nobody could look at it and be like, "Ah, you are from here. Ah, you are this color. Ah, this is who you came from." Like I didn't want that connection anymore. I wanted to create something like the artist that was an international, you know, like it, you couldn't, you couldn't pinpoint me. You couldn't pigeonhole me into a category based on my name or my heritage. Um, and Donatella Azagas was just, to me, it was, it made sense, you know, and it felt right and it felt good. So I, I took this kind of like decision after actually watching um, this YouTube video, because I was trying to figure out how to change my name and I came across this radio interview with like, um, she was like a spiritual, glo- uh, spiritual guide in the hip hop world. And I remember 
I like let the video play and I went and took a shower and it came out and they started like the first thing I heard was like, so tell us about your name change. And I was like, whoa, this thing is speaking to me, you know? And um, this particular interviewee, she she said that she no longer wanted to be called by her old name because that old name was associated with so much pain and trauma. She now wanted to be called to her higher calling, her to her name of that person. And that resonated with me so much. Just the idea of like, like, letting go of all this past, this pain, this trauma that I had been connected to and being able to shape this new person that I wanted to create, that I was in charge of, that I could mold. I love that. That as an artist, you recreated yourself completely and then just clean slate, but in this really beautiful and meaningful way. Also, I'm so sorry. I realize that Kishia and I have both mispronounced it as Azygis. Because we were so curious, we're like, okay, you know, what what is the origin of the meaning? Like in, in science, we're like, oh, a zygote, you know, like a zygote is to be like singular, you know. And I'm like, in a lot of ways, she's singular, you know. <laughs> you also mentioned earlier that, um, you know, how impactful your divorce was. Can we talk a little bit about like when you got married and kind of that experience for you too? Sure. Uh, so I actually got married at the age of 25 um, to a, a person that I met on set who was doing video and I was modeling. And it was, you know, it was a very whirlwind, very like spontaneous relationship and decision to um, get married. And in partly it was influenced by the fact that he needed to get a green card. Um, and, you know, it wasn't because of that, that we got married, but part of that was an influence in it. And uh, we were married for a total of three years. Um, but at six months, I knew that the re- relationship wouldn't work out. It went from fun and new and spontaneous to this kind of cyclical, mentally abusive uh, relationship where it was the same fight, the same argument over and over and over again to the point where I became very confused because we would discuss something and then put an end to that discussion. And then that same discussion would be brought up the next week. And I was, it was very confusing to me because I, uh, I was like, well, didn't we already talk about this? But the, this person just loved to like harp on the same thing over and over again to a point where I just became toxic. You know, after a year and a half, um, I was, you know, I was the cleaning lady. I was the chef. I was the tattooer. I was the website designer. I was the handywoman. I was the dog walker. I was everything. And um, the lack of appreciation from my partner at that time really was soul draining. And it led me to probably the sickest I've ever been because of the amounts of stress that I was going through at that time. Um, I had dropped down to 89 pounds and um, you could see my entire um, like rib, like you could see my rib cage through my chest. And um, I had lost my appetite completely. I had never been that sick before. 
you know, I had gone to a point where I was so tired of fighting. I would just try to get away from this person and hide in the bathroom um, just to stop arguing. And he just wouldn't leave me alone. Uh, but I had gone to the point where I was, you know, I had to make a decision for myself. And, you know, I was in and out of the hospital at this time. And uh, I remember thinking to myself, like, I'm either going to die from lupus or I'm going to kill myself. And that's the moment that I was like, all right, I'm done with this. I have to go. You know, I can't do this anymore. I can't keep trying for this person who doesn't appreciate me or see value in what I'm providing. And um, I feel like, you know, at that time, it was it was the scariest thing that I had ever done because I was going from this just pretend partnership where I was, you know, I, I had someone to help me with living expenses and and day-to-day life or, you know, to be there for it to like the idea of becoming like completely independent and not knowing if I was going to be able to make rent, not knowing if I was going to have food. I just knew that I had to do it for myself if I wanted to survive. So at a year and a half, um, I, you know, I, I used to have like this like long, beautiful hair. I remember like I had to like keep running away from him and like staying at my parents' house for a few days, staying at my best friend's house for a few days just to stop arguing and stop stressing out. And uh, I came back and I chopped off my hair. I dressed up in like this really bomb, like boss lady outfit. And I took him out to dinner. And that's when I told him like, hey, guess what? We're getting separated and I'm moving out. I can't do this anymore. So yeah, that was... um, that was quite a turbulent time as far as like emotion and uncertainty went, but it honestly was the most beautiful catalyst for my career. And like, it's weird, you know, to like say that, but it was like, I went from devoting all of this focus, time, energy to this person who did not appreciate me to being able to take all of that energy and just pour it into my art. And that shift in like physical, you know, labor or like, and and mental devotion going from a toxic relationship to just focusing on the art was really the, the, the time that I just saw the biggest explosive growth within my career and within myself as an artist. And it was like, you know, again, kind of like being able to apply this meaning to something that at the time felt so tragic, you know, and like now in retrospect being like, Oh, thank God I went through that. You know, I needed that. I needed, I needed that experience to see what I would never ever tolerate my life again. I needed that experience to see that if I focused on myself, my art, the right things and progress, what I could become. And to know that like, you know, somebody's criticisms of me should never hold me back. And I think the most important lesson that I learned from that entire experience was that I had to be an independent person. I had to take care of myself. I had to be able to fend for myself in every single way and not depend on anyone, no matter who they said they were in my life. Would you say like your, um, 
becoming Donatella? Was that like a culmination of that whole experience or was there like a time period between that? Like what was going on kind of in your career step by step as um, your career and like kind of just who you are, like your perception of yourself um, from the start of that time period to like where you are now? I definitely think that my old name was connected to a lot of that trauma. And I felt like that was like my old self. And it took me a long time to heal from that and understand why I had to go through that. It took me a really long time to stop being angry about it. And I feel like the name change was almost just like a signifier and like, like an awakening and this kind of like shedding of a skin where I didn't have to be angry anymore and I didn't have to think about it and I didn't have to hate this person anymore. It was just now a time to focus on myself and what it is that I'm trying to become and what I want to represent. It felt very like, it felt like shedding an old life without like, and I still like, you know, I extract the lessons from the hardships and try to learn and grow from those but I just don't want to be attached to them. And I don't want to have those drag me down. I see like so many parallels between, you know, this like transformation of your, like your actual self, who you are, and even like the the work that you're doing in your art, um, you know, like the experience of going to get a tattoo for most people. I mean, some people are like, you know, it's on a whim or, you know, whatever. It's just, they want another design or something, but I feel like for a lot of people when they're going in, especially for like their first tattoos or whatever, it's like you've thought about this thing that means something to you and you're ready to like change your physical form in a way that's permanent, you know, to express this thing that's meaningful to you. And like you've done that in your whole person, like who you are and everything. And and, and then you're able to help other people kind of accomplish those transformations that are so symbolic and meaningful and really actually change who you are. I just think that's just like such a beautiful um, expression inside who you are and also like what you do and how you impact people. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. With the tattooing, I, you know, I'm, I treat it like a sacred art form and that's the regards that I hold it in and I care for every single one of my clients and I care to give them something that's going to make them happy and, you know, just, you know, make them feel good. Um, so I'm, I'm always so like, I'm so happy because like people come to me with stories, you know, and like with meanings and with tribute pieces and, you know, to, to be able to do something that means something for someone to translate their thoughts, ideas, emotions into this piece of art that they can wear for the rest of their life. It's, it's really, it's such a beautiful thing. And then it's such a unique human connection that I really like I love it, I respect it, and I try my best every single time, you know? I mean, I'm not perfect because I'm a human, but I try. And it's it's such an honor to see people, like to see people's reactions, to see how they live with the pieces. And this whole art form has been such a gift from God to me. And I'm just the, extremely grateful for it. I know this is like an audio form interview, but anyone listening that hasn't seen Donatella's art and work, I mean, obviously in tattooing, but also in so many other different media, um, 
you have to go and look at her Instagram, look at her website, look at even like the way her brand is presented. It's so intricate and beautiful and bold. Um, you got to see it. <laughs> I know you probably want to after like hearing um, just all of this, this background too. We do know, so you are the first uh, female tattoo artist at the Shamrock Social Club. Can you tell us a little bit about um, when you got started there and um, how long you've been there and like what you're really focused on right now? So, yeah, I actually came to Shamrock Social Club about five years ago now. And um, I came in through Freddie Negretti, who is a black and gray master. And, um, you know, I, I had no idea really kind of what I was getting into. And, and I had no idea that I was the first female to ever tattoo there. I actually found out at the Christmas party when one of the regulars, she was so amped and she was like, how does it feel? I was like, I feel good. She was like, but like, aren't you excited? <laughs> and I was like, yes, I'm very excited. And then she was like, aren't you excited that you're the first female to ever tattoo here? And I was like, and I looked at Freddie and I was like, whoa really? And he looked at me, he's like, well, I wasn't going to say anything. So that just like, just finding that out was kind of like mind blowing. Cause I was like, oh man, like that's kind of pioneering something, isn't it? And, uh, you know, it's, it's been a really interesting experience there because I came in, you know, with, with a skill set that was adequate enough to be there, but I was, I wasn't as good as the people around me, you know, like, and that was a driving force for me. I was able to observe all of these guys and I would just watch them and I would listen to everything that they said and I would just pick up on all little tricks and I would ask them questions. That kind of became conflicting at some points, but you know, it didn't stop me. And for me, like I'm a go-getter, you know, you put me anywhere, I just want to rise to the top. So I just, you know, started going for it and then like started like really trying to get into like the different techniques that I was seeing and finally like taking that single needle and just, you know, practicing until I got it. And it took me about two years of being at Shamrock to fully grasp the concept of using a single needle for tattooing. And ever since then, like I haven't stopped and I absolutely love it. And I feel like I was able to grow a lot while being there. And I'm extremely appreciative for it because because of Shamrock, I was really forced to specialize. When I started doing walk-ins there, it was like, I want a single needle palm tree. I want a single needle wave. I want a single needle this, that, that. So I was like, all right, it's time to get good at this, you know? And um, I, I just started practicing incessantly. And, you know, I was like first one in, last one to leave. And I absolutely fell in love with it. And, you know, now it's really shaped my style that I, I love to do. And it's like crazy amounts of detail in small spaces. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a really beautiful journey of growth while being there and having the influence of Mark Mahoney and Freddie Negretti is just, if you know the tattoo world, like those are the OGs, these are the legends. So to like be able to work alongside them, to get advice from them, to see their techniques is just like, it's the most priceless experience ever. That's so cool. So awesome. Have you seen an uptick in female tattoo artists since you began your career? 
I definitely feel that there's been more media attention around female tattooers. I do feel like, you know, they've been around for a long time, like Carrie Barba, just like amazing women doing amazing work. Um, but with like the, you know, the presentation now of like all the tattoo shows and that kind of stuff, it's definitely more of a stronger female presence. It's it's interesting because some, some clients, they'll, they'll be like, oh, I will only get tattooed by females. And I'm always like, oh, that's interesting. Why? And they just love the female's attention to detail, you know, and like the softness of their hand, you know, there's just, there's different little qualities that I think we possess that can give us a, a different approach in tattooing. Totally. I mean, I can even like attest my tattoo f- with you took like four hours. Um, but, you know, other people were in the room and they're like, you're so calm right now. I'm like, well, she has like a really gentle touch. Like you have like this soothing energy and um, you know, we really focus it at Bridget, we focus on confidence and communication. And I think so much of communication, you know, is verbal and listening and speaking, but also this kind of nonverbal communication. And um, I'm curious, like as a tattoo artist, I feel like because it's such permanent work that you're doing, communication is probably a big part of um, just like doing your job well. Are there any like practices or tips or things that you routinely do when you're communicating with your clients? Yeah, well, I mean, like any service industry, I think that it's really important to set ego aside and to really listen to the person's desires. Um, I do feel like my business marketing background, it plays a major role in the way that I'm able to understand people's desires as far as like their designs. But I think, you know, you know again, treating the situation with respect and care and knowing that this is something that's extremely important to my clients is a major part of how I operate. You know, there's a lot of empathy. There's a lot of attention to detail. And even like little things for me personally is like, I have to make sure I've eaten right before I tattoo. I have to have slept well. I have to be in a good mood. I have to listen to good music. I have to have my coffee. You know, it's just like all these like small ritualistic things that help me feel 100% to be present in that moment for that person. It reminds me of like surgeons, really. And what you're doing is it's surgical in a way where it's like you have to be kind of in that like peak, calm, flow state to produce your most like precise work. I think there's there's a variety of roles that really like require that that constant state. Do you ever feel like burnt out or do you have to like kind of take breaks from being in that zone as an artist or is that just something that flows through you well with tattooing I just I absolutely love it um but that being said it is a very physical labor so it takes a toll on my eyes my back my hand um but I feel like what really keeps me going as this entrepreneurial force is the fact that I do focus on different subjects on different times so I'm not just always tattooing as for example, right now I'm working on a collaboration with um, with Justin Mensinger, and we're doing this fashion collaboration where I'm designing all these graphics, and he's sewing these clothes, and we're you know presenting it in New York. And I think like being able to hop from like one focus to the next allows me to kind of like regenerate my inspiration and my energy on like this daily basis. So I don't get bored because I like to do different things. I like to build stuff. You know, I like to paint things. I like to design things. I like to Photoshop, you know, so I just kind of like, again, that versatility as an artist, I feel really keeps me invigorated so that 
when I come back to Shamrock on Thursday to tattoo, I'm just like, cool, awesome. It's tattoo day, you know, but Monday, maybe Monday it's paint day or design day. So it's like, I just, it's this kind of like constant flow. It sounds like you really, um, you're mindful to keep things from getting stale, like letting your artistic energy get stale anywhere. It's like, let it, let it go in a lot of different directions and um, keeps everything really, really fresh. Absolutely. Like, I don't like to be boxed in. I don't like to be, you know, told what I can and cannot do. My mind is like, it works in so many different ways. I'd like to call it multifaceted, you know, it's, and I feel like as an artist, it's, it's very important to explore these different subjects freely without constricting yourself because, you know, even though I've been criticized for having too many trades or jack of all trades, master of none. I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I'm obsessive. I'm going to do all of them really, really well. You know, they all influence each other at some point. You know, the sculpture can influence the drawing. The drawing can influence the tattoo. The tattoo can influence the marketing. It's just like this interconnected web of activities that may not be completely obvious to the normal person, but like in my world, in my mind, it all works really well together. A true diamond in the rough. Like I'm actually like when you're saying multifaceted, I'm like, yes, I see all of these things and the way that your mind works. <laughs> <laughs> well, honestly, Donatelle, I feel like we could like talk to you for ages. You have such a, like a soothing, candid, real energy. Um, and I'm just so excited for people to hear this episode. Unfortunately, we can't keep you all night. Um, so we'll, uh, I guess we can kind of transition into, we usually end with like a fast five questions and that you could just say what comes to mind immediately. And then we'll, we'll kind of wrap up if that's all right with you. Awesome. Yeah. Sounds good. So for number one, when do you feel the most confident? Always. <laughs> Love it. Always. Okay. Weirdest thing somebody's asked you to tattoo. Ooh. It could be like Ooh. the drawing itself or the body part. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, this one gets, yeah. Okay. So satanic symbol on the chin. Oh, mm, yeah. Have you ever said no? Yes. A lot of times. Yes. And this is probably a hard question to answer, but um, what's your favorite piece of art that you've ever created? So right now I'm actually working on my first solo show. I've been working on it for a little while, but um, I have this four foot by six foot skull painting that I'm I'm very proud of. And I think it's probably the best work I've ever created. Okay. What is your, what's the song you tattoo or paint to? Like, what's your vibe? Uh, I love all different types of music, but I will say that listening to Metallica makes me tattoo really fast. Yes. Where is your favorite place to create? Is it inside, outside, loud, quiet? I love to be where all my supplies are. So my little, like, I always create my little art room, my space inside my place of living. So wherever I can get my hands on every single thing I need. So the laboratory. (laughs) I love that. So a lab of your own making. Mm -hmm. All right. And this is our last question. It is not part of our fast five. It's something that we like to end all of our interviews with. Looking back on your teen self, what's one attribute that you had and didn't see the value in, but that you appreciate so much more now as an adult? Hmm. I mean, I'm going to go ahead and say like that going through the lupus 
is something that I saw as a defect and a downfall as a teenager and that now I see as a guidance through life. I love it. Well, Donatella, thank you again so much. This has been just such a pleasure. Um, Where can people find you, see your art, um, online, offline, give yourself out? (laughs) So uh, you guys can find me on Instagram at donatella.azigous, which is D-O-N-A-T-E-L-L-A dot A-Z-Y-G-O-U-S, or donatellaazigous.com. And if you want to come by Shamrock Social Club and say hi, then come by too. (laughs) And that's our show. If you liked what you heard today, please like, subscribe to, follow, and share Meet Bridget with your circle. The best way to help our work here is to rate and review our podcast. We're listening and constantly working to build something helpful for you. Catch you next time. Did you have an awesome time? Did you drink awesome shooters and listen to awesome music and then just sit around and soak up each other's awesomeness?